Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. So first off, Happy New Year and welcome to 2020. Uh, we're off to a rocky start as a country and a nation, but I appreciate you all for coming back. You're listening to the fifth season premiere of First Gen, also it's the 35th episode of this show. We have a lot of great guests in the following weeks, and of course this includes today's guest, Nansikalela Mutiti. She's an assistant professor at Virginia Commonwealth University and a brilliant designer and artist. We talk about growing up in Zimbabwe, how being accepted to Yale brought her to America, and also her design work, which focuses on the nuanced differences between black and African-American cultures. We also touch on her work concerning erasure of culture and how that led to reading Zimbabwe, and that's a digital archive of Zimbabwean culture. But really quick, I just want to thank you listeners again for a great 2019 for first generation burden and buying the first gen uh, Nike first gens because last year we were able to contribute $7,000 to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, thanks in part to you listeners and your generosity. So I appreciate you for that. And also I know that the beneficiaries of that appreciate you. And also remember that anytime you want to contribute anything to benefit immigrants' rights, uh, try the ACLU.org. Uh, That's a great place to start. So back to our special guest today, Nancy Kalela Mutiti. Uh, me and Nancy have been talking about doing the podcast for a while, so it was a great pleasure and honor to have the opportunity to sit down with her at Listening Party over Canal Street Market where this was recorded. We had a great time, and honestly, I felt very reinvigorated and also uh, inspired by her words and also her energy and this was a really enjoyable conversation recorded a few months ago now at, at this point in time um, but everything's still so relevant so without further ado here's our conversation with Nansikalela Mutiti you have to tell me when you start <laughs> no well we have started we're already recording wow okay <laughs> I know thanks for coming through no it's a pleasure oh it's it's a pleasure seeing you um I know the last time I saw you was at the 154 art fair yes which is super dope um also I got a little starstruck there because I saw I I was walking up the staircase in that in the back hall and then I saw Chris Rock in this did you see Chris Rock no there? I did not know Chris Rock was there really no I saw him I was like whoa Chris Rock, and then it was such a tight quarter that I almost, I was like, oh, wait, should I acknowledge this moment <laughs> or should I just uh, keep walking? And I chose to keep walking. But Yeah, I did the same thing with ASAP Rocky on Broad, uh, Broadway. Really? And um, I was like, oh, my gosh, he's, he's he had started saying a few things that I wasn't happy about. And I was like, if I talk to him and then he like says something crazy to me i'll be crushed or if he like tweets out something crazy about oh my meeting this african in the street oh so i just my uh, gosh i just like i didn't and i regretted how long ago was that four years ago oh so pre-sweden 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 yeah so thanks again for coming through when you when you dm me last night i was on my way to go out to a party like uh and I remember thinking, it's like, oh, shit, I can't get too lit tonight because <laughs> I want to be able to have like a really coherent conversation this morning. I appreciate that. But all my conversations are incoherent, so it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know how to derail a conversation. No, that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way this podcast begins is uh, our guests come on and then they start with a little bit about who they are and where they're from. So 
if you could kick us off, that'd be great. Well, who am I? That's a very big question. I'll I start know. with where I'm from. Yes. I'm from Harare, Zimbabwe. It's a small teapot-shaped country that sits right on top of South Africa. Uh, my mother's family are originally from South Africa, uh, a region that used to be known as Transkei. I think it's now called Eastern Cape. There's a lot of uh, content in my biography that um, is connected to uh, sort of British colonialism mm. that I'm starting to learn now and unpack. Um, my father's family are from uh, Zimbabwe, and um, it's not common. Well, it wasn't common in the time when they got together for people from those two tribes to marry, Krasa and Shana. Um, but they met uh, when they were living abroad. Um, my parents studied medicine. I'm the child of two doctors. Oh. Um, <laughs> lots of pressure from relatives right, to follow right. that Gen- line. General practice or were they specialists? <laughs> uh, they were general practitioners, yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. They, they ran three clinics between the two of them. And actually, you know, thinking about like... In Zimbabwe or overseas? In Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe. I'm it. the first... Uh, child to be in our family to be born in Zimbabwe. My two older sisters were born in the UK. Yeah. So where I'm from and uh, what home is are also very different things now because of uh, my family having been in the UK, you know, in the early days of them, of the, you know, my parents' union, my two older sisters uh, being born there. Um, and now with the economic crisis in Zimbabwe, a lot of people in my sister's age group, you know, many of us anyway, have left uh, the country. You know, I find myself in the U.S. as an economic refugee. It's not, it wasn't necessarily by choice that I that I left them. Um, and so home is in so many different places. Right. Yeah. What was it like growing up there? I'd just love to know a little bit about your childhood and a little bit about what that uh, culture meant and how it informs you today. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about it. We, Zimbabwe used to be uh, called the breadbasket of Africa. So it was quite, um, you know, our economy was like really doing well in my, in the, my, in my youthful days. So we had everything that we needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, my parents were part of the first black middle class, you know, after independence, we Zimbabwe gained independence in 1980. That's two years before I'm born. Right. And my parents were about the same age. I was born in 1981. Ah, okay. One year, my senior. <laughs> oh, there you I go. I would never have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> you look great. I, would have, I thought you were in your 20s when I first met you. Oh, oh th- th- I hope that's a compliment. It is. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, you might um, mean that you find me immature. No, it's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, when I first met you at the TDC uh, Type Drives Culture Conference... You and your great talk about erasure. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god! Like you are such an amazing intellectual. I was almost intimidated by oh, you. No. no, I mean this uh, uh, is a very new, um, but an extremely important strand in my work. Just trying to recover the content that we were never uh, given, we were never taught. Some of that has to do with colonialism. The rest of that is also to do. With, you know, it is colonialism. It's, it's what happens to a community after they've been sold this like um, hierarchy, power structure. Right. Their culture has been devalued. They don't pass on the information about what's special and beautiful about their languages and their histories. Even personal biography becomes something that's hidden. And literature is some is is something that gets heavily affected. Right. Uh, what people are writing, what uh, publications are circulated, what we are encouraged to read. Right. Um, and so you know, getting back to like um, growing up, 
my parents being part of the first black middle class, having been educated abroad and coming back to the country, helping to build this new Zimbabwe, they st I, felt, I feel like that generation still had a lot of hang-ups and really uh, reinforced some of those colonial ideas. We spoke English at home, mm. uh, the kind of school we went to, it was a Catholic school, but you know, all, a, a lot of um, values um, from like the British Empire, British culture, are still embedded in what it means to be Zimbabwean. Right. And um, you know, I take that. I take that all. That is a real part of my biography. Yeah. And it is what helps me to make the kind of work that I'm making today. I think about you know uh, being bilingual as much as my Shauna is very bad. Um, I think about the sensibility that comes from having uh, a, being in a community that's influenced by another space, having some kind of footing and grounding within like cultural tradition that is inherently African and what that hybridity means and how that's also shifting and changing as uh, we're encountering new things, you know, me moving now to the U.S. and right. coming in with all of that and then how my being the U.S. also affecting right. uh, what my identity or what the expression of myself is um, or how the expression of myself becomes really sharpened and heightened because I'm not back home. Sure, sure. Yeah. So can we unpack that a little bit? So I know that you went to the uh, university or you went to the Institute of Digital Arts. Yes. Yes. And then um, I presume, and also you went to Yale yes. uh, for graphic design. Um, but I know that uh, a lot of your creativity and your art encompasses a lot of not just graphic design, but also the investigation of culture as well mm -hmm. as the, the search for the self and self-identity within the greater African diaspora. Mm -hmm. Like uh, what was, what brought that uh, what brought you here to the United States in order to in further investigate that here? Like, wh yeah. what was that transition about? So I've done a lot of different things in my career, and that probably started not probably it did start in Zimbabwe. I had the opportunity to um, art direct for dance and theater. Gotcha. How did you get into that? Oh, what, well, was the, what was the early <laughs> creativeness? I want to. I want to. I was dig a. In. I was a painter, but I was a painter because that's all I knew I could do with. The, my visual creative abilities. Mm -hmm. I but can when you draw, were a kid, right? Well, uh, even up to being an adult. Really? Yeah, I was a portrait I feel like painter. You have so I would, much more. I would paint uh, uh, portraits on commission. I would uh, do like a lot of. I used realism, but also um, kind of took real objects in you know real life and combined them with uh, with text and you know all these different things. Mm -hmm. I'd, make a still life and break that down to create metaphor and meaning. But uh, working as a painter or practicing as a painter in Zimbabwe during that time, our audience were all expatriates. It, you know, it was all Europeans. Why is that? Is that because of uh, economics of it? Yes, and also, you know, you're in a, in a situation where, again, talking about your culture has been devalued, you're constantly working for recognition. So uh, our generation, our parents' generation were sold this idea that you need to become a professional, you need to be professionalized. Yes. You need to go yes. and become a lawyer, doctor, engineer, accountant. Yes. So who's checking for an art career? Who's supporting a young person <laughs> that wants to be an artist? It's yes. like kind of sweet and cute that you have that um, ability. Right. Though I will say my mother was totally different. I'm so grateful. And I think also because she uh, broke with uh, cultural norms, she was one of the first black women um, physicians in our nation so she was already dealing with you know people kind of being weirded out by her or thinking that she's rebellious or too uh, you know just like these ideas right. about women who break out into uh, disciplines and fields where there hasn't been representation and I 
told her one day, I was um, like maybe 11, I came home with a painting from art club. We were always being made to do like renditions of the impressionist. So we had a uh, sunflower still life and we were, trying, we were being made to do impressionist paintings like Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. And I came home with that painting and later on in the evening we were talking and I was like, oh, I want to be a doctor like you. I really love science and uh, biology especially. And, you know, my drawing people was also that. I, I'm very fascinated by the human body, by the figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, she told me I was crazy. She said, <laughs> there's so few people in our community who can do what you do, who are investing in doing what you do. Why would you want to go to medical school for eight years? You have this amazing gift. Oh, that's a great, that's a great encouragement. Yeah, it was amazing. And then I told her, that's fine if you don't want me to be a doctor, but I maybe then I will draw uh, pictures to help doctors. So I thought I was going to be a medical- You still illust- have to go to medical school for <laughs> I that know, I, but no, but I could be an illustrator. I thought I was going to do like illustrations for like medical journals yeah, I think and you still things have to go like to that. medical school for that. Well, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause my, my mom was a doctor too. And uh, my dad was an architect. But then I wanted to draw because of my dad. Then I was thinking about medical illustration. My mom was like, yeah, I think you still have to do like four years for that. I was like, oh, yeah. Well, that would have been a good way for me to sneak in uh, and be able to be in medical school like I wanted. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish I had known. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when it came to the arts and everything that you were seeing, a lot of things that you talk about in your in your work and a lot of the interviews that you give are, are about um, looking through... Uh, uh, going through an education of the Western lens within um, creativity, right? So, and I think about that too when I when I think about reclaiming my indigenous self mm. through my own creative abilities. Like, what were you? What artists were you looking at early on, and what? When did you start to expand your horizons when it came to inspiration? Uh, there was not a lot for me to look at in terms of. Um understanding the global art world or even just like black art practitioners and black voices. Yeah. But my community back home was a huge inspiration. Going to Ziva, Saki Mafundikwa, he did a book called African Alphabets, really investigating um, cultural identity from, you know, the the root of writing systems, uh, typography. I'd never thought of that before. Right. Um, all the all my peers were my mentors and first teachers, um, and then also there were older artists who let me come under their wing because I didn't have the opportunity to go to university do my undergraduate degree. So I really spent a lot of time looking at books and um, talking to people and just trying things. The library, the National Art Gallery, was amazing. You know, I encountered, of course, that back then I was still thinking about painting, so I was looking at Francis Bacon and people like mm. that, and. Um, uh, I finally got an opportunity because, you know, I started doing a lot of different work like the art directing, curating exhibitions because so many people who had been trained to do that left the country. So I started to get opportunities to curate shows at the National Art Gallery or being involved in uh, big projects that they wanted to mount. And that platform allowed me to start seeing like, oh, there's an artist called Chris Ophili, mm-hmm. Michaeline Tom- Thomas, like this was amazing. Carrie Mae Weems, um, Ligon, Wangechi Mutu, I was like, an African artist, amazing. Um, all whom I've like been in pro- close proximity to, like either at a dinner, at an opening, or have had an opportunity to speak to them, which is wild. Yes. Because they were just like, um, they kind of felt like superheroes, like their impact is real, but they, 
they aren't really real people. Like I didn't think I could have a connection with them. Oh, or, like you know, they, they weren't tangible people. No, they to weren't you. tangible. No, 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 no. It's just someone I'm seeing in a something I'm seeing in a magazine or book or a small thumbnail on my screen because the internet in Zimbabwe at the time was so slow. I could mm. never download a whole web page, you know. So I just see the small little <laughs> thumbnail. Yeah. Back then, you just see one in the corner, which is say <laughs> the, uh, the web page. You know, like the web page is loading with this exactly. image comes from whatever. One little bitmap yeah, you know? gif, exactly. like in the upper so, left hand side or something. Uh, it was hard. It was very hard to, to find these references, and I've always been a person that has been. Um, helped <laughs> you know i i learned from talking to people and from being in relationship to people it's just like i think the information transferred that way is really wonderful and i'm glad for the lens of people that kind of came close to me as mentors like heaton bagat who's now uh, working for a4 a foundation in south africa in cape town um you know just like uh, helen diros also just like telling me uh, who they think is interesting who they think is important right um when I got to the US, I spent like the first three months of graduate school uh, watching every Art 21 episode that had come out before <laughs> um, because I just was so hungry to learn like who was making work. I'd never seen this breadth of work and I didn't know that you could make work in any way. I kind of gave up on painting because I was only seeing an expression of it um, that was limited and limited to what the what the buying class, what the collector class, you know, these expats wanted, market scenes, you know, uh, very like realistic, figurative, or, and you're very impressionistic kind of, um, and I just right. didn't very, know. Very, very traditional. Yeah, yeah what, what people think that. Uh, yeah, what people think yeah. is art. So I was just so excited to learn new stuff. You know, I kind of felt like, oh, did I sell myself short by going into graphic design? But no, I don't think so. For me, Every every uh, tool I use is polyvocal. I can show work in a museum. I can make a publication. I can make a video. I can work online, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to make work that could go out to the people, to my community. Yes, they can click on a web link by mistake and come to something I've made. They can see a huge billboard and they can't ignore it. They can find a flyer on the ground. Yes, they can see yes. a stack of of magazines. I really needed to get away from this like white space you know and in, in all the senses of that mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. totally when did you first come to america 10 years ago now wow july did, 27 what brought you here i came for graduate school oh for yale yeah can you tell a little bit about the yale experience i've had a couple of people on here that have gone through through yale <laughs> but from my understanding of the yale experience specifically through the lens of design um is that and let me know if i'm wrong like that the Yale POV, it's a bit about challenging the viewer, challenging the user. Um, and that it it's it's a different philosophy as opposed to um, commu like outright communication, hmm. uh, where communication uh, from from a traditional Western lens, a traditional Eurocentric lens is about like the fastest way between two points. Yeah. Um, but then I believe that Yale is a bit more about process. Could you talk a little bit about that? When I got to grad school, I remember so much uh, conversation. This also, why uh, Yale? Were your parents stoked when you got Yale? No. Really? Uh, well, was your my, family well, excited? I would have been super <laughs> excited. My so my parents uh, passed away when I was quite young. Oh, understand. And um, my so it's it's me and my older sisters and my younger sister. We're kind of like these wolves. We raised each other. <laughs> understand. And. Um, 
And when I got the opportunity to apply, I did not think I would get in. So I didn't tell anyone besides my younger sister that had applied to university. And um, I was like, what is this like? And don't tell anyone. She's like my closest person in life. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally went through the process and got word that I had been accepted, I phoned my older sister in England to tell her. And she said, um, I'm going to get off the phone. I think you've been tricked. There's a lot of recruiters that come to our country promising to give students scholarships. And then you come to the U.S. on this supposed scholarship, but you are at a two-year college. What do you call you call them? Community college. Yes. And not a four-year college. And you basically, it's mostly for athletes. So you're basically just like, uh running you're just like you know performing your sportsmanship and not getting to learn right um so she thought that i'd been tricked by one of these recruiters like if yale was in new haven i would know about new haven i'm gonna get off the phone so i can google it <laughs> so oh my gosh. she didn't and she then and then when she saw that on all the websites and that all her searches were coming up with new haven she was like Wow, that's amazing! How did you do it? How are you going to pay for it? Um, well, what is that? What is that? Um, that uh, why? 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 About, what is it about that mentality? Why? Why have that mentality about it? Like the the lack of trust about it. Well, also when I heard that Yale had a art school, I'd been talking to Sheila de Bretville. I'd been interviewing her when I studied at uh, Ziva in Zimbabwe, and I just I had just only seen her work. I d- didn't have the mindset of like. You know, really researching and learning all the things that I tell my students they have to do. I cannot. I can really relate. I was just like fascinated by her practice. Mm. And then um, I got up. Then I was told about the program, and I was like, "What? Yale has an art program? It must be terrible because I would know about it. <laughs> <laughs> we know people going to Ivy League programs for that engineering, medicine, and whatever. Yes, you know, yes. just like underrepresented in our community going to university for." art so I didn't even I was not even checking for that right. at that institution and also this is like when I learned about the program eventually I mean this is like the one of the top institutions in the world the program has a, an amazing reputation yes again back to this idea of critical practice the the, the program was so uh it was so um it was really made that, that kind of program is made for someone like me Coming from a painting background, a fine art background, uh, you are you are working through your own motivations. You are coming with your own content. Oftentimes, you're mining uh, things from your own biography. All, the, all, the, all that is coming up. At Yale, we were asked to think about what it meant to have a critical practice, and we were always uh, asked to show up in our work. What mm-hmm. are your politics? You know, where ha- where have you been? What doesn't exist in the world that you think needs to exist? We were asked to be editors at the same time as we're making. We were asked yes. to be authors as, yes. at the same time as we're making. So I got, I was so lucky. You know, I, I got uh, to work as uh, myself. I got to make my own work without thinking about an external audience. Yeah. Um, and I find uh, in a lot of design programs, or when people think about graphic design, you know, as you- It's about the external yeah, audience. It's about primarily. the audience and like how to, you reading the audience and making something that can come close to that audience exactly as quickly as as, uh, as you can, like selling that uh, point, selling that value um, almost immediately. And I've I've never had to do that. And I, I was a bit worried that I wouldn't find an audience making that work at Yale my community were not necessarily the same demographic, right. didn't share the same biography, some were immigrants, but when people see content that has got images of African people, has African content, 
um, there's a way that uh, they sort of shy away from it. They don't want to say something wrong to offend. You know, it was at the time where there was sure. even more conversation around um, social justice, you know, talking about uh, blackness. If you don't know the right words, uh, it was a beginning of pull out culture. Colonial guilt. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like what? Cause I, I think that you make an interesting point that I, the, the history of colonialism across the board can create guilt for the colonizer. Mm-hmm. And then that creates a barrier of communication, whether it's it's not not meant through necessarily malice on the individual's end, but it just prevents them from wanting to have the conversation for the fear of offending. I think that is a huge part of it, but I don't buy that. Right, you know? got it. I think there's other things at play, and you it's interesting bullshit? you use that language because that language was used, um, you know, around my work when I was in graduate school and was instrumental in kind of silencing the conversation around it, also stopped me from making the work that was my right. my work. You know, I started to have a lot of insecurity. I don't think it's an excuse. I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's... I think it's part of it. I think it's I think a, a that piece. Uh, the, what this power dynamic produces is it starts to um, cover up, it starts to codify uh, people's value, it starts to... Um, and then the content of what's actually happening, the mechanisms that are at play start to disappear because they become normalized. So for people on either side, it's hard to pull out the strands and very like kind of re-traumatizing to pull out the strands of like mechanically looking at what actually happened to produce this thing. Yes. That people were killed, that people were treated as not human, that people's languages were erased, that people were asked to adopt different belief systems. So to come into a situation where you are being, um, where someone is also asking you to acknowledge all of those things. when you The power dynamic within the world doesn't, doesn't um you know when white privilege comes with a lack of not knowing not needing to know because you're able to ride through society uh and cut through everything and to have when you don't have you kind of are more questioning you're more demanding and you have to point to the things and say but look guys you you came and did this but look guys this happened all this time ago you have to map it out so people can understand where you are is not because of your lack of ability or you know other things that are thrown at people of color and immigrants, you know, when they're you know struggling or not able to like have the kind of livelihood or lifestyle or status in the world, and so it's a new thing for people with privilege to have to look at that condition to see themselves, and it's 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 an insecurity of a lack of self-analysis. It's like an awareness of their of their ineptness to like engage in a conversation yes. because they're not coming with the tools to uh, have a conversation. Absolutely. They've they've always been a situation where, well, now they're being told because we're braver and we have channels to like, um, and we feel like we can, that this can show up in our work and show up in our lives wherever we show up. And so now uh, the rest of the community has to come to the table and acknowledge and also do work behind the scenes to acknowledge, to kind of go back and excavate that history that also belongs to them, take ownership and like really learn that. You Absolutely. Know? Then we can that, have a conversation. That's great. Yeah, you know? the, the idea of taking ownership of that history. Yeah. How do you break down those barriers? Um, I'm still learning. I feel like as a global community, we have just come out of a very necessary but dangerous uh, point where now that people it of still color- still feels pretty dangerous, honestly. <laughs> people of color have been, are now feeling well, we've gone through all these stages of fighting for liberation, whether it is uh, civil rights in the United States and, and well, globally, or it's uh, struggles for independence uh, in like um, pre- previously colonized uh, countries or communities. 
Um, but I feel like uh, now that the media has also been another front line that we've had to cross, like asking for representation, our voices, actually first person voices being heard over airwaves, like what we're doing, right. being seen in the media, yes. uh, being printed and published. Uh, there's also a way that those channels have allowed for us to like really point fingers and name names. And it's important for that account level of accountability, but I don't think we've been doing it with uh, kindness and love and with uh, giving people space to grow. Oh, do you think we're doing it like in a shame culture yeah, type I of Yeah, I think lens? that has been a, a lot of it, you know. Do you think we need that though in order to break through? I think it was an important initial step, you know, to if people are listening to you, you have to shout at some point. Yeah, sometimes you have to shout. <laughs> and yeah, then you do. when now you've got the attention, if you continue screaming and not letting the other person have a have room to like ask more questions or to like admit you know they're wrong and stuff like that i feel like i'm i don't want anyone to step back and uh, not like assert themselves i'm very assertive i i name names but i also want to kind of be uh supportive i want to name all the names <laughs> i also want i also right want to be supportive i you know yeah. we, uh, when we talk about community so often we're drawing lines if we really want uh, to is it a, like a slap and a kiss type of like strategy? I don't need to kiss anybody. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know I, do I, mean, do, I do need to kiss somebody, but... Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Like, a, I, like not, a love, there's a love and a hate and like a back and forth about stuff I don't sometimes. necessarily want to uh, speak with authority on this. I'm also learning. We're Understood, all learning yeah. in the. We're all learning the moment. We're making the history now, right. you know? We are I making the history I think people that um, were involved in like the liberation for Zimbabwe were, were making it up as they were going along with the support of other communities that have gone through it. And yeah. I think we have to kind of share in like learning what is working, what's supportive, what's building. I think we have to also now that we've named names and it's much clearer, like uh, where transgressions have li lied and how, where this has uh, brought us to, like what's the next stage? Yes. I think what, what comes after the call out? Do you think that we've hit a critical mass it, with this uh, shame culture, call-out culture, um, do you think that it's going to inevitably kind of die down and then um, and then uh, minds and, and hearts will settle? Or is is there, based on human history, a next logical step after this? Do you see what's what a next logical step might be? No, I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm just in this thing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living in this time. I'm very grateful to be living in this time. Yeah, sure. The world has so many issues uh, moving through the world has so many issues. Moving through the world as an African woman has so many issues. Yeah. And I'm just trying to do what I, I'm trying to figure out if I'm doing what I am supposed to be doing in the world. I'm trying to make sure I'm as supportive as I can um, of other people, especially those who find it more difficult because of how uh, history, what history has made of us. And um, so I, you know, I think I used to be a little bit more engaged in these kind of conversations. Now I just want to do the work. What, what, what is the work? What, what? Uh, I think there's a lot other ways to say things without me opening my mouth or commenting <laughs> on social media. You know, I'm sure. involved in this uh, design practice, which is uh, thinking about archiving, right. which is thinking about uh, recovering submerged narratives. Oh, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think that your your talk about erasure was so fascinating to me. Speak a little bit about the. Um, about your investigation of of your culture in that way and also mm -hmm. like the archiving and, and how yeah. and how you're building on that. When I was in graduate school, I needed to declare a thesis and I was like, uh, I don't really have any idea of where I want to go. 
I just know the things that I don't know <laughs> that I want to know. Yeah. And I started to think about what was going on in Zimbabwe at the time. One of the most one of the things that made it hard for me to make work about home was that there were laws around us being able to photograph and film in public space. You could only use your camera in your own private space, like your home. Oh, this what's was, the reasoning behind that? Because uh, you know the space became highly like politicized. There was a lot of corruption. Um, there was uh, you know the infrastructure was declining because of a lack of resources. There were sanctions. So right now we still have a lot of fuel queues. We have commodity shortages, like really crazy shortages of basic uh, goods. Mm -hmm. You know, we go in and out of this. It's like a cycle, depending on what's happening with foreign currency and, and you know, what the legislation says. Um, and then, so I was like, I want to make work about home. I, try, I want to investigate home, but how do I do it when I can't take photographic references where and I can't film, when I can't record freely outdoors? And so I started to think about images that already existed that could stand in for that moment in time or could talk about what had happened. Um, and I started to take a video camera with me around the city when I'd go home on breaks during grad school. But I would put the, the camera in my handbag and um, I would basically be recording the audio. The image would just be like black or like maybe you could see some color because my because of the fabric and whatever. And I kind of like this idea of like the lack of image or this partial image, shadowy, some glimmers of light, but always hearing what is around. So right. thinking about what content is and what you can bring to uh, the gaps. Yeah. So, so then gaps became such an important part of the work. When I moved to New York after graduate school, I started to find some other Zimbabweans in, you know, in the area and uh, we would come together and have dinner together you know, in Brooklyn and we'd talk about what we didn't know about home. The, people say this about this politician. Did they actually ever do that? Where's the document? Um, my collaborator, Tinashe Mushakavan, who is like a really well-read uh, scholar. He's a literary scholar. He also you know, just knows a lot about Zimbabwean history, African history. And so he would be kind of uh, telling us, oh, no, you must read this book. And we were like, oh, we didn't even know this person used to write books or we only read this one uh, Zimbabwean author in English class, you know, through our whole school career. What, who else has been writing? So it became this amazing conversation where we were learning together. And I was like, but this could be like an actual repository that other people could use because other people have those questions. Right. So we started reading Zimbabwe.com and we thought, let's try to document as much as we can, as much as we can. It's very hard to create a complete archive, but we do as much as we can to keep uh, building. And we started to get dismayed, like sometimes you can't find the information about an author. Sometimes you can't find the book cover. Sometimes you can't find um, you know, inform other information, the metadata. But what became fascinating to us was those gaps because they talk about um, what the internet does to not include people of color. Like you can't go on Wikipedia and just find a biography of many Zimbabwean authors or artists or, right. or, or any kind of right. <laughs> notable person is very Western focused. Yes. Um, so SEO is racist. <laughs> yeah. So when you come to our website, that's one of I'll the places that. Uh, that you can find the biographies of some of these very important voices um, and, you know, see the cover of the book and find out what the book is about because not many people, unless they um, are very heavily invested in uh, being uh, scholars of our nation, not many people are checking for checking for us. And so people are checking for you. They're not documenting you. 
So if we think we're important, we have to take that into our own that's hands. That's an interesting point. If they're not checking for you, they're not documenting. Mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Archives are personal. Yeah, you know, they are. Um, it's not, we think that an archivist and a librarian, even a scholar, that their mandate is to like document everything, preserve everything. They're going to preserve what they think is important, you know? And that's real. It's, it's why certain monuments have been destroyed in the world. People preserve and keep what is important to them. It's not always what's healthy or helpful for a community. They have the resources. They can make the call. Resources will always be limited, even for the wealthiest institutions. Right. And, um, you know, th- things are thrown out of libraries all the time. Uh, boxes and boxes of content are, are donated to libraries and archives all the time, cultural institutions all the time. And the things that are important to the to the scholars and librarians working there or who are affiliated are the things that will be sorted, the things that will be put away, the things that will be labeled, the things that will be digitized and made accessible for people online. We've gone to so many um, repositories, um, even libraries, important libraries in New York City, and asked for certain um, material about Zimbabwe. And they'll say, well, you know, there's all these boxes here that uh, were donated and they've got this kind of content in there, but you can't access it because it hasn't been sorted yet. And we don't even know when it will be sorted because we don't have uh, money to pay another intern or something to do it, or we've got so many other things or like- Oh, bureaucracy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so those spaces, bureaucracy and resources are kind of the most, uh, violent and injuring kind of thing. Right. So it's like... Oh, I never thought about bureaucracies being violent necessarily, oh, I think but I papers, think it is. I think papers are some of the most violent uh, uh, things in the world. That's how we control people. That's that through legislation, through creating these barriers with paperwork, with language, um, you know, with books that tell you about why someone's not valuable or make something else valuable. I, I have, and that's also why I think about... I'm just writing that down. That's a fascinating yeah, yeah. thought. It's also why I'm so obsessed with making books now, even though I was always terrified of uh, the object and the, you know, typography. There's so many rules. I don't really know. I don't have enough examples of black women that are celebrated for doing that to Africans. And so it was always felt like a Eurocentric kind of thing, uh, Oh, yeah. I think that thing, you know? the, the, the typographic studies or typographic study in general is so Eurocentric. Yeah, and yeah. They, that's really... The control of the conversation. Yeah. I think only now are people even beginning to scratch something beyond that. Exactly, and see where some of these systems came from. Even exactly. where some of the materials come from. You learn like with one within, line in a history textbook that oh, paper originated, you know, in Asia, in China, exactly. and all of these things. But then there's a whole chapter on Guggen, Gutenberg, the Gutenberg Bibles, oh, yeah. and things like that. It's like oh, but that was so important. Why aren't we still continuing to talk about that? And like, why aren't we continuing to talk about? The, the different ways that people read across the world. Why is our education on writing so normative, even in spaces uh, where, you know, pe- peoples have their own writing systems? Design education can still focus on um, these Western values. And so it, it kind of pushed me away from it. But now I'm like, yeah, I want to make dangerous things too. So I'm going to co-op that, that yes. uh, format. I'm going to make all of these things. I'm going to make them so beautiful that you won't be able to ignore it even if you don't care about Zimbabwe. <laughs> you are going to want that object, yeah. you know? And that's kind of the philosophy that we use when we are doing our work under black chalk and when I'm making my own um, work through my own practice. Can you talk about a little bit about a critical reception to that? I know that you've spoken a little bit about um, barriers within critical reception mm-hmm. or uh, difficulty of critics receiving yeah. some of your work. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? 
we've had a lot of issues. I think I've just had a lot of issues in general, and it's not um, specific to me. I think uh, some of that, what we were talking about, like the kind of guilt complex or like not wanting to say the wrong thing or not having enough knowledge or, or coming from Being a value system. Being scared to have a yeah, or coming from a value system where, where you always have always othered. If you encounter hmm. black content, African content, uh, you know, within the cultural sphere, if we t- put aside pop culture, in the cultural sphere, uh, through these cultural institutions, we see artifacts from um, our nations put behind glass cases with very little context of who made them, what they mean, and, and not even engage in a conversation around like uh, what technologies were used, how did these objects change over time. We're kind of just frozen uh, and we're seen as people that have made ritual, spiritual objects. Right. And it's like, no, these things are like real, like, like someone made this. Someone made someone it. Made this. This someone made house. a technique. Someone, someone right. produced a technique. Somebody produced tools. Right. Those tools are over right. time. And those tools have influenced what other people have done, even in the West, because when you that's came so to colonize, true. that's what you were doing. You so came true. and mined all the things, not just the minerals, not just the people. You, you came and mined techniques. Right. And though when you took people away, you also took them those hands that could make things that, like that. Those right. those those uh, geniuses that could uh, think about you know, uh, right. you know construction and uh, decoration and function and right. form, and all of that is embedded in what becomes the Western part of you know the, the Western world. Right. And and that continues today with uh, immigration. You know, this it's a continuous thing. Absolutely. Wow. That's I can't so... even remember what the question was. No, no, <laughs> oh, I know. Yes, I remember. It's just said, a free. This is a free form conversation. But you did say where. Uh, sort oh, of critical like, oh, reception. Exactly. Yeah. So I find that with my work, often uh, people, uh, when they start to see, oh, Zimbabwe. Oh, she's doing all this work about Zimbabwe. Oh, that small country which has that which had that uh, terrible president who we knew on the news. Right. Oh, Robert Mugabe. Oh, sweet. Oh, that work. And then moving along swiftly. It's not engaged with, with the same level of criticality. Right. We're thinking about, oh, this is a really interesting publication. These these design moves are really interesting. Or like, yes. um, oh, the, the way this is edited or the kind of content that's combined. Or, yeah, actually, Zimbabwe has touched the rest of the world, just like every other nation. We're yeah. all involved with each other. Zimbabwe is international. It's not just a small third world country. I'm not an, just an immigrant. I'm an international person. Absolutely. No, I'm you're in, a global I'm, citizen. I'm exactly. I'm engaged and involved with all kinds of things, just as everyone else should be. Yeah. And it, and people stop themselves from that uh, moment of learning. As an immigrant, I come to the US and I have to, uh, people put it on me to learn and assimilate. And I kind of push back on that. I'm very invested in continuing to mine and learn more about my own nation and I hope that people that engage with me that moment of contact is a moment of growth because I grow so much from my experiences in the US absolutely um, and I think that you know we should be sharing that is what has produced all the new technologies all the new values it's by us sort of like learning from each other and being like wow that's fascinating we could do better if we like uh, tried what you're doing or like that's so interesting it contrasts with my experience or with what I I've been doing what I know and this is like making me a fuller yeah. person. Yeah, like a, yeah, a robust human. Yeah. Yeah, someone who's willing to engage for sure. Yeah. Can I ask when you first got to America, what did you think of um, uh, black culture in America? I had uh, consumed so much of it in Zimbabwe because it comes to us with uh, through um, music, through fashion, through films, 
um, one of my projects uh, in 2014 um, at Recess Art called Ruka, I collected all the 90s. I bought all the 90s black American movies that right. had been really well, we're important. we 90s babies in general. Exactly. And so we all watched, uh, you know, uh, Set It Off. We watched Boomerang. Set It Off. <laughs> we watched all the oh, house man. parties. I, I, rem- oh, remember, I remember I was trying to, me and my fiance, we were trying to learn the house party dance. Mm-hmm. We can play where they like where they lock feet and yes, then they do yes. the 360. Oh, yeah. No, we were doing those things oh, at yeah, parties. Totally. Yeah. We were, I tried we to were learn just that like, like five that. years ago. It, it didn't work. <laughs> and Tisha Campbell still looks great. Yeah. Um, I used to draw images of like Tisha Campbell, um, Gabriella Union from right. Black Hair magazines or from Gabriella like... Gabriella Union still looks like she's yes. like 20. It's yes. crazy. Yes. And she was the oldest one in... Oh, what was the cheerleading movie that she was in? Oh, bring it on. She was the oldest one of that whole cast. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. I and want to be like her when I grow up. <laughs> I think you're well um. on your way. All you have to do is a Hot Wings <laughs> episode with Sean Evans. Because Gabrielle Union like, powered own. through Doesn't, that. Isn't she married to a basketball oh, player? Uh, Dwayne Wade. Yeah, he just retired. I, I to, oh, I need to find a retired basketball <laughs> player uh, who can uh, help me build my art collection. They're buying a lot of art from phenomenal right. people. Well, Kyrie Irving just moved to Brooklyn. Katie just moved to Brooklyn. Oh, well, you live in Virginia now, right? Well, I come, look, I'm here oh, in New York. Here. Yeah, here all the time. I thought you said I'm a global citizen. Where, where is my home? Where is my home? <laughs> Sorry, you're right. I was thinking mm-hmm, through my own personal mm-hmm. lens. My bad. Um, but funny about Gabriella Union, do you know, or do you, do you, did you watch, um, what is the series that is Being Mary Jane? Being Mary Jane. Oh, yes. Did you I'm, ever watch it? Oh, wait, was that on BET? Am I wrong? I don't know where I was watching it. I'm not going to reveal my sources. <laughs> <laughs> Your sources about this TV show. No, about where I'm downloading things illegally. Oh, um, sure. <laughs> streaming. Yeah, your history on Pirate yes, Bay or whatever. Exactly. But the first season, the storyline that she is um, uh, sort of talking about on the red, on the television show, on the news show, she uh, talks about... Uh, a scenario where women uh, raped a man in Zimbabwe to collect his semen. And that starts off the, the storyline of her wanting to have a child and her like collecting semen from... You said I could say anything on this. Thing. You can say anything yeah. you want. So then she oh, yeah. Added, you know, on, she, then she puts it, BET, yeah, then yes. she puts the, this uh, vial of semen that she collects from one of her lovers in her refrigerator to hopefully like use if she ever decides to have a child. Yep. And I, I found that so fascinating that, you know, people think, oh, Zimbabwe is like whatever there and they've got their funding, their issues. But the, that um, program used uh, used something that had come up in our news cycle as a way to connect with uh, an idea around how black women are like living, like professional black women not uh, feeling like they can find partners or not when you have women or putting it off and stuff. That was just kind of interesting. Like, oh, I'm watching an American television show and they're talking about my country yeah. using kind of like, a, I didn't really like the, that they used that content. But we have all heard about those scenarios. I just also right. wish they talked about some other stuff, you know, right. that made us more real and not like always using extremism yes. when we show up in spaces. Right. Yeah. It's like, like the equivalent of using clickbait mm-hmm. in order to contextualize a country. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and also sometimes we only show up when it's kind of like ruined porn or like these very like extreme situations. Like sure. our, if our leaders are bad, then people know about them. People right. never celebrate the really The same thing with great, the Philippines too. Yeah, it's like yeah. most people know about the Philippines through like Imelda Marcos exactly. or the Marcos regime and they don't really know the nuance of the culture. 
Uh, this has been a one-directional conversation. We, you uh, haven't. I don't really know that much about you besides oh. like seeing you present at uh, TDC, oh, TDC, and I was like, wow, that guy is so articulate and oh, so thanks. like dynamic. I felt so. Um, I was very nervous going to that conference, and you just set a tone which made me feel like, oh, you know, there's people here who are just like not. Um, you know, just like people that are real, people that can engage, and oh, yeah. made you made it feel exciting, not oh, uh, kind you. of uh, overly heady and intellectual. It was like, yes, they're bright, amazing people here. Let's like really enjoy the moment, not right. like let's sit and 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 frown our foreheads and try to like grapple with things that we don't understand and hear right. new big words. You made everything so relatable for me. Oh, I loved I, it. I appreciate that. Well, can I tell you, I was so nervous that day <laughs> because I, I, I. I'm okay when it comes to public speaking and presenting. I know I have to do that little thing up top. Oh my God, they're like working on the air conditioner outside here um, for the listener. Uh, but um, th- that day I th- was super educational for me. And when you when you talk about setting a tone, my my biggest like anxiety about the day was being on consistently because I I couldn't do like a, a 25 minute presentation and just sit down and then just enjoy. I had to kind of, you know, go up yeah. and introduce everyone, you being one of the amazing presenters. And uh, my, the reason I was so honored to be there was because my, my thoughts about design and also creative culture, as well as being seen within the greater spectrum of pop culture, uh, my parents were born in the Philippines and uh, they came here in the 60s and I was born here. Wow. I was just raised in New Jersey. Hmm. And, you know, I, through the lens of immigration, um, my mom brought all her uh, brothers and sisters. She's the oldest of 10 here in the 80s and 90s. You know, she was like the the, uh, the harbinger of the, her mm-hmm. family unit. And then my father was the youngest of nine. And um, a lot of that family's back home in the PI. And, you know, going through... Uh, a, a design and creative education here through the Western lens, I, I same thing. I was like, I saw all the gaps and I was wondering like, why are, why don't I feel seen in this culture? Mm. And why am I constantly under duress or do I have the responsibility to create through a Western or Eurocentric lens when I know that there's more out here? Cause like, you know, when I was a kid, like when we were kids growing up in the nineties, all I cared about was hip hop, I cared about uh, b-boying because mm-hmm. I used to dance. Um, I, you know, I remember the first like music I ever bought with my own money was uh, uh, Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, and I bought <laughs> uh, Wu Tang Enter the Thirty Six Chambers, and like uh, Green Day Dookie and um, the Cranberries album, right? And like that was the first shit I ever bought, and then it was never validated academically. Yeah. And, you know, and, and also I love like high energy visuals. I read comics as a kid. Yeah. And I was like, why? There's obviously um, commercialism around this. There's commerce here. But then no one validates that cultural Venn diagram. Totally. No one wants to pull it into the institution. Yeah, exactly. But they want the value of being able to see and consume it. No exactly. one wants to spend time, invest time in breaking it down and show how sophisticated it is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so and there's this, there's own uh, aesthetic there, uh, cultural nuance. And like that's even apart from just like being seen as uh, a Filipino American, mm. um, you know, uh, that the, and all the complexities that come with that. Yeah. yeah. So... Within the past few years, my my personal mission has been about reclaiming a bit of my indigenous self and kind of understanding that self identity, not yeah. unlike um, everything that you do. 
Um, although you do have like a, a much deeper convert, uh, 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 I think you have a, a deeper intellectual conversation to be quite honest, because you, yeah, I think you're way smarter than me. No, 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 <laughs> yeah. no, no, my dear. Yeah. I just uh, ask questions. Each project is a question. I'm not trying to be, uh, I don't know everything. I'll never know everything. <laughs> oh, and and so we're all doing the same thing. You're, you're asking the right questions and those questions are going to evolve. Yeah, you know? exactly. And yeah, so and then through the immigrant lens, you know, the past few years have been obviously super tumultuous and uh, toxic, um, the conversation. And I wanted to in- investigate on my own as well as create a platform where uh, people like us who are immigrants or the children of immigrants could just talk. And then you just start as saying, like, here, I'm here. Uh, this is who I am and where I'm from. And then here's the world through a lens. And yeah. then we just chat about it because I think to to the whole barrier of conversation and the barrier of entry to a lot of um, audiences. They just, they can't get past that first sticking point. So if we can just get to that, get past it, jump over the barrier in the beginning, and then we just talk about real shit, mm-hmm. you know, like it's not going to be easy. Even also, the name I, of the show, I think you know? um, something that we need to do is like be okay with acknowledging all the shit. So like, yeah. Hell yes, yeah. I'm I'm investigating like cultural identity, but I'm also acknowledging and investigating all of the other stuff that um shifts and changes or like the reality of my identity, the reality of the history, also the fictions, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I hear you talk about in in um investigating indigenous culture, I hope that you don't uh, miss the opportunity to think about uh, although he's taking a photograph of me photos. I hate it oh my god <laughs> and I'm this. captive you I hate can't. this you hate this I know I I'm sorry it. I need content it's no, content no no just keep talking um, so unfair Nancy, ignore me. so unfair the power <laughs> dynamics here you know you, you have a phone too you can take a photo too okay <laughs> you this is our mutual space you can do whatever you want in here so he me. says but he knows the power of the interviewer and all of oh this my stuff. gosh uh, oh my gosh or maybe i'm giving you power i should just be having a conversation yeah exactly yeah. see let's take photos of each other taking photos let's be those oh human beings God. we let's, should do like an instagram stories and invite each other should. and like you're seeing the other person we on the should. other side i know that's actually pretty tight I have good ideas, but I'm always scared to execute them. <laughs> Don't bite my idea, okay? If I see you doing that in an interview, I'll be mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, here you are talking about it, so I then know, you can claim it. now on the ether, exactly. Authorship. Exactly. Yeah, so like all the stuff, like I, I don't know a lot about uh, Filipino history, but I had the really phenomenal privilege of being at graduate school with Christian Henson. Mm. And uh, our, our uh, practices... Um, like in terms of uh, self-publishing, well, I don't want to say self-publishing because we're really working to build institutions. So like work, working to build these structures that can uh, pull in this work that at the same time we're learning and questioning uh, through making. Um, he talked to me a little bit about the span, uh, the Spanish influence. Yes. He talked to me a little bit about the re- religion, Catholicism, yes, and yes. how there's a lot of cultural hybridity there in the way that yes. uh, Catholic symbols show up in traditional Filipino um, like rituals yes. and, and things like that. And uh, It's, I think it's that one of the most Catholic countries in the yeah. entire world. I think this part of the story is very important. You know, very, very important. And so 
I, I, I'm trying to step away from moments where we are essentializing ourselves and not acknowledging where different things have touched each other for better or for worse. That's yes. part of us. It makes our, up our story. And it also stops people from like uh, making us these small beings whose uh, culture comes from way, way back when. Our culture is dynamic. Yeah, Everyone's culture, and, and also, if we don't acknowledge that, then we can't point to the fact that, oh, hey, Spain, you guys actually have this thing now because you were in the Philippines doing all of this stuff. We're like, hey, America, there were black hands that actually built those things and, you know, and like some of the, and the, so much of the food that you eat and the music and stuff comes from wherever. If we're always only looking, trying to look as far back as possible to locate ourselves, we miss it. Yes. We miss it. That's true. Yeah, Spain was a... Uh Pretty savage to the Philippines, <laughs> to be real. Shout out to Magellan. What happened to you? <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, you have I'm, to tell me that story after the. After oh, oh, Magellan. Yeah. Oh, well, Magellan died in the Philippines. Um, he, um, he, yeah, he, he. Educate me, please. Give me context. Oh, so Magellan. Um, of course, a uh, Magellan who was an explorer, which is obviously another term for someone who goes out and finds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they for get their to com- be explorers. They get to be we, called yeah. explorers. Uh-huh. But um, Magellan, um, he came to the Philippines. He landed on one of the beaches, and then one of the. Um, oh, fuck it. I'm just gonna look it up. I'm. You know what? Look, you just tell me the part that you know. Oh, so yeah. the the Magellan thing is that he came to the beach and then um, he was he was killed by one of the uh, one of the tribal leaders on a Filipino beach. Mm. And then I remember when I was a kid watching uh, Tiny Tunes or Animaniacs. Then Animaniacs that did this one song about the history of Magellan, and it was like Magellan, Magellan, blah 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 blah. And then at the very end, they talk about how he landed on in the Philippines. And then he dies, he gets speared, and then his ghost floats away. And what was so resonant to me as a child was that they didn't um, eulogize him or glorify his death like, oh, he was a hero. It was more like, you know, he died there and uh, that that was it. Wow. Yeah, so it, it, it didn't try to make him out to be like this like super great dude, I guess, although he was, they portrayed him more as a historical figure, which he is, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like, oh yeah, he was, he was a good dying dad out there. It was still kind of like, oh, you know, he kind of got fucked up (laughs) in the Philippines. Yeah. Hold on. I'm looking up. And so this was like part of what began the um, kind of colonial efforts. Like, well, this is what, what drove Spain to move into the, into the Uh or he was from Portugal. I'm looking it up. Portugal, uh-huh. Yeah. So Magellan was killed during the Battle of Mactan, and he uh, the expedition later reached the Spice Islands in 1521. Blah blah blah. Yeah. So yeah, he died in uh, 1521 at the age of 41. Mm-hmm. Oh damn, he's a couple of years older than us. So uh, hopefully we so can outlive Magellan. I, I think this is so interesting. Um, if you yeah, if you read these histories. Um, you know, we think about Cecil John Rhodes in, you know, who, who Rhodesia was yeah. named after. Now sure. I need to also Google because I want to see how old Cecil John Rhodes was when he died. But yeah. these were young people getting onto those ships, going out to conquer I, new I whole know. lands, establishing totally. whole new territories. Exactly. Isn't, it's, getting it's, scurvy on the water. And I, I feel like that's something that has been, that we've been robbed of, like, at 37, what I imagine myself being able to do, like, I want to be like that. I want to have that much, like, bravery. I, I, 
don't pose like that, man. You know, like I, I, want, I want. I don't. I don't. I, I still do know. I don't. Like I wish I could feel like I can. I believe in this thing. Well, I don't I'll even know what's out there. I'm just going to go and try it. In, well, I guess. I guess I'm. I, mean, I am you and kind Magellan of doing are both it, on Wikipedia, so you both have that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new thing. Uh, shout out to Black Lunch Table. I think that they're responsible. Um, here, the heart is doing amazing work to make sure that black artists have visibility. A funny right. story about yes. that Wikipedia page. I was asked to come to, I think they were doing a photo shoot at PS1 so they could use the images for the articles. Mm-hmm. And I refused. I hate being photographed. That's why I was shouting at you. Um, <laughs> Sorry, my bad. I always feel like my facial expressions are so dramatic. I, I always look crazy. So oh. then they put a, an image of me from this conference where I'm like turning around, like looking at someone with side eye, like what the fuck? <laughs> and and uh, so in the end, I I said no to a photo shoot because I didn't want to come out looking like that, but I came out looking at that anyway. And I guess <laughs> I have to accept that that's just what I look like. I'm always frowning. <laughs> I'm always giving someone side eye. No, that's not true. That's not true. No, I, you ever really, a, no the, the portrait that they used for TDC was like that that really beautiful portrait. You're smiling. Yes, because I took matters into my own hands. I found a friend whose work I wanted to support. And I said, please, Dominic, please, can you uh, photograph me? He shot us in his uh, how, in his home. Mm-hmm. So it was very, I didn't feel like... Um, it's a beautiful portrait. Threatened. Hey, thank you, you know. He was training me about how to put my head and what to do with all the parts of my face. You know, it was a real, it was a struggle, but we got there. We got something good. <laughs> yeah. Can't you go to Wikipedia? Can't you just change that asset? I don't know. I don't want to play on that. And I don't care. Yes, people <laughs> must go and see me oh. with side eye. That's also part of me. It's okay. Oh, that's true. Oh, that's absolutely true. That's, that's true. That's also real. If side eye is part of you, then Yeah, then, I, then fools eye. won't be emailing me, asking me to do nonsensical things. They'll think twice. <laughs> you know, people come correct. Put some respect on my name. Yeah, exactly. You put that nice one from TDC where I'm smiling. <laughs> Everyone thinks, ah, I can write to her about everything. Oh, and No, 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 no. I have a friend. limited amount of time. Oh, I, I, I like friends. I like to have friends you know but uh, uh, there oh needs to God. be like some kind of um what can i say like a, a filter not you can't be friends with everybody i agree with that's that. that's not real mm-hmm. yeah and you can't true. do all of the work and i'm learning how to be like much more pragmatic about that what work do i need to do what is the work that i need to do what work uh can i give away to other people where that work might be what they really need to do or like you know that's their passion I really love supporting people, but it's not always that I have to be the hands that touches the work or the mouth that, you know, speaks those words. And I'm trying to be more intentional about sharing because it's also a question of visibility. If everyone's coming to you because they saw you have a Wikipedia page now, I think it's totally hilarious. My family now are like, oh my God, you made it. (laughs) I would say that's one of the main checkpoints within, you know, making also then definitely shout out to whoever put that up because uh that's putting major respect on my name and i appreciate it i don't feel like i've you know i feel like i have so much more to do and it's actually wonderful to see all of that content codified it's actually so accurate and and like almost everything is there Sometimes they forget when we're in the struggle, you know, you're just trying to make that project, you're doing all of this on your own, institutions aren't supporting you in the way that you would hope and you forget uh, all the things that you have done and where you've where you have been and come from right. because you're just putting one foot in front of the other. Yes. And I so I'm really grateful to see that up there. Other people reading must uh, think, wow, that's amazing. I think, yes, it is. 
but all of that work is so necessary. So it's, it's also hard for me to feel like going back to the uh, archiving. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 and maintaining yeah. Uh, that you know that, that record, history. and also then people can see. You know, we can, sometimes we always say this: like you won't like people need to see someone that looks like them. Sometimes mm-hmm. we just say that, and it kind of uh, has lost its power. But it's real, you know, like yeah. for other Zimbabweans, other black uh, practitioners, other people who feel marginalized, who haven't been represented, to see that this person came from that small country in Southern Africa and is operating in the U.S. is a professor at one of the top art programs in, in America, is still engaged with the continent, is able to do all of this work, mostly self-funded. What does that mean for someone else? Right. That means that they can do what they want to do at the level that they want to operate at, even with all the, you know, all the struggles and challenges, there's a way to keep moving. And, and sometimes all of those, uh, you know, these repositories and the documents, they leave out the messy stuff. I think I really advocate for the messy stuff to stay in because that's the full story. Otherwise, we make everything look so um, so easy and clinical. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not easy. Right. Oh, then, easy. then you become like that, uh, like your heroes back in the yeah, day. Just a, yeah, hero, yeah. poster child, celebrity kind of thing. It's, it's, it's tough. Making graphic design in itself is long hours. My wrist and elbow were giving me problems. It's the first time I've ever experienced that. And oh, I got you have like really a carpal scared. tunnel situation going hey, on? Please, please don't diagnose me yet. I have to go to the doctor. <laughs> uh, my students are teaching me to are do... Are you on a Wacom tablet? What are you working with? Oh, don't don't ask me. I don't want to reveal my bad practices. You know? <laughs> what's, what's the tech we're dealing with here? Uh, uh, well, these, are for the, these are backdoor conversations. <laughs> you know, when you come That's from... So uh, when you come to graphic design from the backdoor... You just do things. I do things in such a, you know, not in the most efficient way. If if people saw my process, I think uh, if my students saw my my. Sometimes when they look at my laptop screen, they're horrified. Oh yes, and uh, I know I think, that experience uh, too. You know, I don't know all the shortcuts and all the things. My process is not slick, but I don't care. You know, struggle sometimes is just part of it, and as yeah. long as the work comes out good and does what it needs to do on the other side, it's fine. Though I will say, I really can't make all the work at the same pace anymore and I'm not so interested in like being the hands that moves everything. Mm. I think art directing, like when I was coming out of graduate school, seemed like a very dirty word. Everyone was like, but you must make the work. Like, why would you, uh, what is art direction? It seemed like it was very corporate. That's I think there's so f- interesting actually. Because yeah. when I was in graduate school, art directing was more like, oh, we want to get to that. Mm. We want to get to that because it, it meant that you were, um, within uh, the higher part of the power dynamic yeah because you had the quote unquote control yeah uh, and it wasn't and there there was um a lot of i went to graduate school at sva and uh the chairman of our program at the illustration program that i was in his name is uh, marshall arisman mm. and also I, actually vi- visually very similar to francis bacon to be quite honest i know that him and francis bacon like had a couple of encounters because it was like kind of dark um 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 existential and uh very uh emotional and also like very based in uh, uh he he very based in aura and energy mm-hmm. um and i know that he he placed a lot of pride and i think that program placed a lot of pride in in the making of it but because of the nature of the commercial nature of illustration and design being an art director to us meant that you had 
somehow crossed a bridge and well, you had made it, you know? So you I think from the artists. kind of pedagogy at Yale, because you are being author, you are being editor, you are being all of these different things. Yes. Having a hand in all the, you know, all the pieces, all the pieces was uh, something that was very important. Now I'm realizing for me to work at the scale that I want to, for the work to go where it needs to go, I, I don't have enough hours in the day. I also have a full-time teaching job. I also right. have uh, somewhat of an art career, which is kind of slowly dying and being strangled out. But it's okay because I still have all the other things I'm doing. And then I, you know, and then I uh, do design projects on commissions to support other artists and cultural institutions that I really believe in. And uh, so I can't, I can't move every single, I can't kern every single oh, <laughs> line. And, and uh, so I actually see art directing as uh, relinquishing control. I'm having a, an, a crisis right now because I'm so used to doing it all. Yes. And uh, I'm having to learn how to delegate, how to uh, project manage, or like I think I now need a project manager. But it's so beautiful to just be thinking on the vision level. And um, yeah, I think I have a very clear... A visual voice, a very clear uh, uh, graphic language that I'm hoping to complicate, you know, uh, the more the work grows. But I also realize that I, because of uh, other things, all the other commitments, I don't have time to do as much experimentation and right. stuff that I, as I want to do. So you have I, to I hope your that energy too. pulling other people in is going to help. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I, I've been very tired. I just did the New York Art Book Fair and had to oh, go straight into yeah. teaching. That's right. And that was last weekend, right? Yes, it was. And we yeah. sold out all the books that we oh brought. Gosh. It was amazing. We feel so supported. And so wait, yo, so you're, have you been in New York the whole week? Or no, you, you, I went you were... back to teach in Richmond. Now I'm back. I, I just what are you here the, in New York for now? I'm just... doing a panel discussion in Bed-Stuy at Restoration Plaza uh, to support a friend, Lasagna Cruz. She's got a wonderful oh, project called We the News. Lasagna. Yes, and also documenting immigrant narratives. Yeah. And so uh, she's oh, and she does asked the, me. The, uh, the art book fair too. We were both on the board of directors for AIJ New York. Nice. Uh, yeah, she was on it last year, I think. Yeah. Nice. Lasagna's dope. You guys are like big shots. I'm just like this tiny little designer. You are on like uh, the board of these national institutions. I mean, I I just look at it like this. Uh, to me, I, I still think I'm like an 18 year old idiot who no. who somehow just tricked his way into being in in these bigger conversations. I, I I'm what I do love though is the the idea of of um, this uh, cultural validation of things that I that I cared about when I was a kid, really cared about mm -hmm. and seeing that put forth more in, in this larger yeah. scale. So we can have I on design like it. that platform has really uh, become so much more dynamic yes. in the past three years. I agree. So thank you for your efforts. We need that. <laughs> oh, I'm not uh, associated with that. Just the, the New York chapter. Well, I don't I know think, the I'm design people, oh, okay. but they well, do great work. Yeah. Okay. Shout out to them. Yeah. And I, I can't claim any of they've that. They've also been panels that AIGA has put on. Like, I think there was a decolonizing design conversation at oh, some yes. point and things like that yes uh, i i always struggle with the with the language but i i support the sentiment of that well what, why do you think that it's the the language itself is alarmist i think extremist? Uh, i think it, yeah but i think it's necessary uh, but i want us to complicate and understand what it means and it's this question of then the, and then what like what does it mean to take certain things it feels like a call to take certain things out of the curriculum I think it should be about making the curriculum richer, making sure that things are standing next to each other, charting the whole trajectory of what's happening simultaneously, what is happening that influenced that before, where, what, where did that go later on, where does it show up? Uh, That's something really I, interesting. Yeah, I think it's, it's so important. I, I, 
I don't need to foreground Swiss modernism in my classroom, but I also want to make sure that people can understand where this idea of like rectilinear uh, geometry came from, how uh, you know modernism and uh, cubism points to Africa and like not leaving us out of that story, right. like p connecting us again, connecting us, telling that whole story is what gives value. Yes. Then now look at those African objects and artifacts, talk about them as you assign value to other works, talk about space, composition, tone, texture, all of those things. You know, I, I asked my students to do that. We look at photographs of J.D. or J.K. and and say Duketa and it's like, yeah, you're seeing images of black women wearing patent cloth, but don't just see black African women these men were using technology. Yes. They are, they are photographing in a particular context. How are they using light? How are they using the idea of like aperture? How are they, how an exposure? How are they thinking about composition? Right. What's happening foreground, middle ground, background? What's happening like, uh, you know, harmony and, uh, you know, contrast? All of these things are so important. And uh, so let's like have a rich experience and also let's allow the curriculum to be specific according to where we are. Yes. Education has flattened so much uh, of information. We have to teach this as the core. Um, why can't, uh, like when I was in graduate school, I started to collect images of uh, records, uh, like vinyl uh, that was uh, pressed in Zimbabwe or like um, music of Zimbabwean artists that was pressed wherever, recorded wherever. Yeah. I loved the, the cover designs. They were so dynamic. They felt like so contemporary. And I was curious about who did that work and like what was influencing that work. And I want to be able to like uh, teach, you know, in the space of Zim or Southern Africa or, or, or other spaces from that position. I want to be able to teach color theory by looking at Zulu beadwork and Maasai beadwork, yes, yes. looking at uh, fabrics that we uh, use in West Africa. I want to teach graphic design where we're just making pattern and it's not like squashing ourselves would think about the, the level of sophistication and production value and the really um, interesting history of how these uh, fabrics that are now seen as African originate from Malaysia, then uh, go to uh, the Netherlands because of them trying to like undercut that market. And, you know, it's all this like old world trade and then yes. dumping that material in Africa because they couldn't sell it to Malaysia because the colors, because the technique was just not what that community was was using. It was so different to their, their techniques. They didn't want the bright colors. And then amplifying that and studying the communities in West Africa to learn what they like and like making specifically for that space. And, and then West Africans taking hold of that as their, as culture, as cultural objects and the rest of Africa looking to that. And, you know, we're in uh, New York and, you know, so many black people love to wear all this patterned fabric now, you know, as a sign of like connecting to identity. Yes. All that is important. That could be a design class. A design class could be hip hop jewelry. It's true. Hip hop it's album covers. True. Hip hop fashion, branding of hip hop labels, assigning value to all of that. You're still teaching typography. You're still teaching all of these things. You're showing the similarities and differences. You know, you're, you're charting, you're placing these things within the historic narrative or within the value system where we acknowledge them as contemporary and valid practices. What are the initial steps that one has to take to validate that within um, academic rigor or academic study? Like, well, what, what is that? Because I think what you're touching on is so interesting. But when I hear, to me, when I hear the term um, uh, hip hop dot dot dot, mm -hmm. right, there is immediately the stigmatization or the, the cheesiness of like, oh, it's it's hip hop yeah. dance, it's hip hop this, it's yeah. a hip hop dance class. It, 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 
Um, do, do you remember this one YouTube video? It was kind of viral. It was from the 80s. Um, and then there was this middle-aged white woman who was teaching hip-hop dance, and it became a meme. And mm -hmm. it was it just spoke to like how ridiculous the idea of that was yeah. in the 80s. And, and then now, because obviously hip-hop is a term, and you know, and like that whole um, that whole culture is obviously you know it's massive. But then there's how do you validate that within academics? Like, what is what's the initial first step to break it in there? Because it's hard to it's it's there's like such a barrier between academics yeah. and pop culture. But then pop culture doesn't get taught within academics. I won't say what the first step is, and I and I want to also acknowledge the work of you know other practitioners like. Uh, Madison Moore, who wrote this amazing book called Fabulous, which looks at uh, presentation and representation right. through fashion, right. uh, black, queer communities, also some immigrant narratives in there about how we dress ourselves. And, you know, uh, scholars are doing the work now to uh, pull themselves, to pull, you know, us into the light, to pull the reality of right. our cultural production, our stake within cultural production into uh, these more formal channels. Right. I think something that uh, is always an issue is language. So at what, in one vein, uh, identifying something as hip-hop or Black American or African or saying Nancy Mutiti is a Zimbabwean artist can, see, can feel like you're pointing and giving honor and paying homage to a point of origin. Yes. It can also be labeling in a way that is othering, that it can only be seen in that uh, sphere. So the way the way we use uh, language is important. So yes. let's say I'm teaching a typography class. Can I? T I should be able to teach this uh, branding, you know, hip hop branding, right. in that typography class without calling the class uh, hip hop typography. I'm right. just teaching typography. Right. <laughs> We're talking about is it serif? Is it sans serif? Is it uh, display? Is it whatever? Is it like uh, you know what what's happening there? Um, so we have to just think about the language. I do a lot of work around hair braiding. I think about yes. uh, that in relationship to technology. I think about that in relationship to graphic design. I think about, I assign language, you know, to that, to that formal visual practice. Yes. And I think uh, being able to use language in a way that affirms, asserts, complicates, or, or presents the dynamism even in very simple ways sometimes. It's not always about being complex and, and heavy and heady. Mm -hmm. um, I think just like being more aware of how we use language. Actually, the first step in including it in uh, academia, just include it. Just include it. <laughs> just no, include I, it. I agree. I remember when I was in the late 90s, I was, uh, I was always a big fan of the source and also XXL. Mm. I got to work with XXL as well. And Amazing. I remember... Um, uh, I was reading a lot of Nelson George back in the day, um, and also I thought he he does such an interesting job about creating uh, or archiving within an academic lens, mm. but also validating the culture. Mm -hmm. And then even someone now, someone like um, Ta-Nehisi Coates or something, like writing the Black Panther comic mm. and kind of breaking into pop culture, but also having that academic background through um a literary history with the atlantic you know mm -hmm. it just kind of mm -hmm. there's like that that cross pollination of culture that validates like like yeah you need to you need to yeah like when i first started as an illustrator something that was so important to me was getting in the new york times and getting in the new yorker mm. it's like i was like i need to get into those two publications in order to feel like i'm here to feel like i'm being seen and to feel like i am 
truly existing within this commercial art space, but you know, the, there's academics to back it up. But then now, and shout out to the New Yorker, shout out to the New York Times, shout out to Business Week and all those early clients that really helped me well, build something. You, you've been big yeah. time. You've been big no, time. No, I disagree. I'm still living in my parents' house and making like zero dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just an FYI to my fucking history. <laughs> I was making no money. Um, but now I'm. It doesn't. It doesn't mean so much to me to have to impress upon that yeah. world anymore. Yeah. You know. So I feel like my my energy can can shift in a more, um, it's like, yeah, I can, I can, uh, even at MTV, I was like, oh yeah, I can, I can do this and not feel like I have to like talk to this other group of people or feel validated mm. by them. I don't know. Maybe that's just a growing up thing. I love that you've worked, uh, through these platforms and are also working in a way that you help to shape what those platforms are, what work comes out of them. Um, so it's just like so impressive. And oh, it's also, an, again, this idea of like, um, you know, I, I've engaged with all these platforms uh, from, you know, the perspective of living in Zimbabwe. There's a way you get all of the stuff, sec, you know, second hand or you engage with it. Somehow it comes to you and it always just feels unreal. You watch MTV, however, you know, so ridiculous. stealing a satellite signal somehow. And then I'm sitting talking to you, somebody that's working there and helping to shape or like directing like what what people are seeing on their television screens that that audience is humongous and i feel sometimes uh i'm hiding a little bit with the work i'm making because well i'm making it you know in my own studio at home and the audience already because the content is kind of like small and you are making work that has to go out to so many people right it's, it seems so intimidating to me and i wish i couldn't think like that i wish i could uh, see it as like that's really amazing to share this, uh, to, to share my skill, to make something that so many people can enjoy, to like um, create an experience for such a huge audience. Mm -hmm. It's like really amazing. Oh, thank you. I, I think I try, I try to bring my skill set to work, obviously. And then there's like managerial um, expectations that come with that for mm. sure, um, between managing expectations of partners on a lateral level as well as managing expectations with 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 my team and managing up as well to you know uh svps cmos and on occasionally wow. like you know like up, upper level management let's say um and that's fascinating to me and and the joy that i take in that challenge is feeling what energy i can put into something so even if it's as something as minor as just you know kerning uh, kerning uh, the type within a logo that mm. goes out. That's like, oh, that's so, that little piece of me that went out. Or <laughs> this is a bit of a side, but um, <laughs> do you know Jersey Shore? I don't watch much television, yeah. but I've heard about it. Yeah. Is there somebody called Snooki? There's Snooki. Oh yes, Nicole. Yeah, but yes. I don't even Nicole know in Polizzi, what the yes. person looks like. I don't watch gotcha. enough I, television. I she's a she's a super lovely person. Yeah, and. You know, something as simple as going on a, on a photo shoot with the cast of the Jersey Shore, which um, you can be neither here nor there on. But I'm like, this is this is super fun. Everyone here is enjoying themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we are creating content that goes out into the world that reaches like a, this really large fan base. Yeah. So and, and like, you know, all of my history. Um, and, and my skill set, you know, I, I try to bring that to the table on some level. Amazing. So, and, you know, it, it's, it's scary, but also it's super enjoyable. Rich, 
the sneaker that you designed for oh, Nike. Oh thank my you. gosh. Thank you so much. That's so beautiful. And oh, thank you. being able to like be involved in culture in that way, you know, you talked about how much hip hop had influenced you, you know, seems also like street culture, street way was a part of that. Yes. And now being able to share share back through that same avenue is huge. Thank you. Well, I don't I maybe I shouldn't say huge because I'm putting that uh hierarchy again where i can't see myself as being like involved I think at that you're level huge. To, me, to me i think like you're the shit <laughs> i i that's very sweet thank you um like, I, I every time i feel a little bit discouraged uh when things are very difficult i will just phone you so you can say that <laughs> but can you say that again i'll record it on my phone i'll just play it back but um no, no you'll have it on this podcast <laughs> you'll have this audio i'll have to look for the time code like when did he yeah, say absolutely. that you're the shit but um, no, I think that, um, and then not only is it about the venue, but the kind of project it was. On the website, you are able to speak about your experience mm. as an immigrant. You dedicate the sneaker design to immigrant communities. You know, you're representing us as a practitioner at this level. And then the sneaker is really fun and beautiful. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, really nice. Shout out to Dylan Rash, who created the actual sneaker itself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I, I know I used to work at Nike for a couple of years, mm-hmm. designing sneakers there, um, working with a really great team. And for me, it, it, it was actually a really validating moment about in closing the loop of what I felt was an uh, 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 influence, you know, childhood mm. things. And, you know, I remember I still have the first pair of Nikes I ever bought with my own money. It's in wow. the box in my parents' house, a pair of Air Force Ones. I bought it when I was uh, 12 years old at the mm. mall. And I remember when I was a kid, I saw Vinny from Naughty by Nature at the mall when when Naughty by Nature was super popping. Wow! He came out of foot action with Mad Boxes, and it just and I was like I was like twelve, and it completely it impressed upon me, and it changed my perception of 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 sneakers. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I want to, I really want to be all about that. And he didn't even have a crew with him, mm-hmm. and you know, obviously he's, you know, he was really big at the time. He's, and you know, I still think Naughty by Nature is really big, and I saw them perform at the VMAs very recently. Wow. Um, but yeah, I was like, wow, this guy just walking out foot action with like ten boxes is amazing. When I was a kid, uh, you know, growing up in Harare, Zimbabwe, LA Gears came out. The Michael Jackson, the special edition Michael Jackson shoe came oh, out. It was so, full of studs, full of studs. There was a white version with um, silver studs and a black version. I think the black had gold studs. And my two older sisters got the studded ones. Oh my God, they were insane. They were ridiculous, <laughs> but so cool for that time. And then my younger sister and I got these black and purple ones. We walked, I mean, we were little kids and we walked like 45 minutes. It seemed like we're walking forever because my mom was like, I'm too busy at the surgery. There was a gentleman that would help like driving to do, you know, do different things for the, they had three surgeries and, you know, like making sure things, you know, happened and then picking us up from school and stuff because my parents were like very, very busy. And um, she was like, if you guys want that, you have to go and figure out how to get them on your own. And we walked, I think she was shocked. These children actually walked by themselves to this mall to go and buy those shoes. It sounds like silly and simple, but at that age, it oh, was like big. a big it's thing. It was like you know, and we're going there and buying it with our own pocket money. Wow! Um, but those that was the only time I was. How much did they cost back then? Like, I don't even remember. I don't remember. That's when Zim dollars were still like, uh, you know, still the currency was still like good. 
But I, I've never been crazy about sneakers. Those are the first sneakers that I ever like really, really bought. Sure. I've now bought a pair of Nikes because my niece lives in Norwich in the UK where there's a, there's a what? Um, you know, these stores where it's like a factory store kind of thing. So I could get yes. it at a discount. Yes. But otherwise, I've never been a sneakerhead. I've owned so few sneakers in my life. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's just very New York centric type mm-hmm. of thing out here too, because uh, you know you're always walking around, and um, in in Jersey, you're yeah, it's it like a big mall culture, big mall culture yeah. in. But Jersey. I want yours. I want yours. I missed the drop, and I wonder if they're oh, still available. No, they're, they're, they're not. Why? They were so limited edition. Yeah, they were super limited. It was through this group called the Cultivator, and then it was available for only two weeks. I know. Yo, it was actually kind of popping. Like, uh, shout out to my homegirl, Kristen Black. Like, Serena Williams was wearing her pair. Wow. I know. And then those really popped popped off. And also Liz B. Croft, who, who dedicated her pair, or um, the proceeds from her pair went out to um, benefit uh, mental health. So there, there were some really amazing creators. And it was, yeah. it was a, a real really privilege. A really wonderful project. I, I, no, thank you for that. Not, mm-hmm. That's really, really meaningful. Oh, that's really nice, Nancy. I appreciate yes, that. Uh, you have to give respect where it's due. You know, you're doing the work and showing up. It's great. Wow, that's what's up. Like, what can you, as we're uh, winding down, like, what, what are some things that you try to impart upon your students? And like, how, like, what are some of the things that you're doing to actively um, give back to the next generation? Because what I love about you and what I love about your work and why I was so um, you know, uh, ravenous to talk to you on the microphones, especially after having met you at TDC, was because you are um, you are speaking honestly and truthfully about um, yourself and your creative ecosystem, as well as the ecosystem that surrounds us and your and your making culture scene uh, through your lens. And I think that's why you're so valuable and honestly, like why you're so amazing. Like, what are some of the things that you try to impart upon the next generation? Well, first of all, they have to look and see who else is concerned with the things that they're concerned about because you're not the first one to try and push for the values that you have. And so that, that kind of gives you the strength. You know, you kind of need, need a community of peers and you need mentors for you to actually move forward and be, you know, successful. Yes. Um, we are always breaking new ground, but we're also um, part of a genealogy of influence. And it's important to know who else has been there, even if they are few, and even if they've only shown up in a, a way that partially resembles what you're doing. And then, you know, as designers, we're asked to make for other people, as we said before, but you know, you're an audience too, you're an audience member, your community is uh, part of the audience. What doesn't exist that you feel needs to exist? What aesthetic, uh, is important to you that you feel hasn't been valued and making that, you know, just like make your work. That's the thing that's, (laughs) students often want to make what uh, is right, what's going to get them the grade. You know, I'm looking for your work. I'm checking for your work. Are you showing up? Like what has influenced you? All the crazy stuff. What don't you know? Uh, Use your work to find that, you know, like you're paying for an education or you're like, learning in so many different ways, like use the time, don't waste the time, add something, add value. In graphic design, often we're so influenced by other people, every every discipline, you know, you're influenced by other people. And when you do a thesis project, like in more traditional academic um, settings, a thesis is supposed to add um, new knowledge to the repository of knowledge. A PhD is, is really that, you know, especially um, and, and even um, the adding new knowledge can be canceling out what was there before, 
with mathematicians, you know, at one point, people are saying the earth is flat. Then people say, ah, guys, there's gravity here. And so maybe this thing is a sphere. And other people are saying all kinds of things. And uh, scientists are cooking up a microwave and selling it to us. And other, other people are coming and saying, yeah, guys, but then that microwave, it emits things like this that are not so good for us. I, I really try to encourage my students to question like, what have we been taught? What are the rules? What are the structures? What are the aesthetics that we value? Is that still a real thing? Does that hold any weight now? So if we can be, can we be part of making what's next? Or actually, what is now? And um, I'm, you know, I'm always thinking in those ways, what came before? Uh, what do I feel I need to see in the world? What part of that is um, valuable to other people? How can my work be questioning? And, and pushing for what is, you know, what what is this moment? It doesn't always have to be about technology, new technology, you know, I think thought, new thought systems or deepening uh, things that haven't been represented is so important. It's just like, do what do, students are supposed to be studying, learning, making, do it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and do it, do it, do it your way. Yeah, and that's what I, I try to uh, encourage my students to do. And I had to um, break a lot of what the education system in Zimbabwe uh, taught me, you know, that I have to answer the question the way the teacher has set it out. That's also the colonial programming. And uh, so if anything, when we talk about decolonizing, I want that part to be broken. And then if we allow people to be investigating all the things that are important to them, then we will have a curriculum and we will have a landscape of practice that it is that is broad that is vast that is complex that is genuinely diverse that is genuinely inclusive because we are showing up with the complexity and the reality of like who we are and what we're made of right do you, do you teach the value of making dangerous work um <laughs> i really uh you know teaching like i don't stand in front of them and say make the i'm lying i have <laughs> i have and i've told my students Any i'm not afraid students make sure you email her <laughs> hold her accountable I don't, no I, I've, I've said it i say sometimes very ludicrous stuff i i told a student one time to to make the work sexy you know like this is an important uh no that's fair sometimes value, the work has to like, be sexy. make it sexy yeah. but sexy not that it it has to be slick or sexy that it has to uh, look like something that already exists you know like what is the thing that polish. makes yeah uh, yeah there's polish and yeah. then it's like what makes that thing irresistible mm. if you want people to get to it it doesn't have to be pretty or whatever but what what gives that thing that punch that like energy yes, yes. that uh you know there's that intangibleness oftentimes when you're making work with this like very important content people aren't checking for yeah your craft and people aren't checking for the aesthetic it's okay that it's just um that it's heavy, meaty, weighty. And I think um, graphic design teaches us that there is so much value to thinking about that visual layer, you yes. know, how it, how it gets to people. Not that we have to play to a community's aesthetic, but like, you know, that thing is in your hand. So like, what shape, what shape do you need it to be in? Graphic design is all about thinking about the shape and form that something needs to be in for it to do its work. Yes, you know. no, I agree. Sorry, we're just dipping right back into it, but I remember, um, I, I think you went to graduate school at a very interesting time in America because we were still in a post 9-11 world. And it was uh, Obama's presidency. I was so excited to come yes. here during Obama's last oh, term. That's, yeah. oh, oh, wait, 10 years ago? So, yeah. Was that 10 years ten, ago? Obama was president. 
No, I, yeah, I know, but he just started. No, no. Had he just started? Has he just started? What was it? Uh, 2009? Well, I, 2008, I, he was elected. So it wasn't his first term. Yes, it was yeah, his first, first term. term yeah. yeah. And then I know that um, like minimalism and also Swiss design were so prevalent here because we were all still in a post 9-11 space. Mm. And then that that embracing of minimalism and like really reinforcing our Eurocentric principles in design kind of stripped away so much uh, visual creative culture, like especially in the 90s when you had like that David Carson, like ray gun mm-hmm, aesthetic mm-hmm. or like, you know, um, like kind of that, that multicultural lens across the board. Uh, yeah, the the odds, the I'm, I'm, I'm still torn about the odds because we, we had Obama, but then we still had to live through George Bush Jr. Mm. And we were, yeah, we were just reinforcing these, these kind of, to me, boring design principles <laughs> because everyone just had to like talk quietly and just yeah. not really like laugh and celebrate. But I think now we're starting to celebrate again, which I like. I've been very um, struck by and sometimes disappointed in myself and sort of questioning my community, you know, uh, especially designers living in the U.S. And, and, you know, even just thinking about coming from Zimbabwe and where Zimbabwe lives now, the range of places it lives. Like, what am I doing with my ability to, to create messages or to package content that actually affects the like, change in the direction that we want to see? When I came to the U.S., it was when a lot of these images of police brutality against black bodies were happening. I went to quite a number of protests. I remember one... Uh, when George Zimmerman, when the non-indictment, um, you know, when they announced the non-indictment, and I went to Times Square, and I thought to myself, oh, I didn't, I didn't make anything, I didn't do anything that reflects what I think and what I feel. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out like where action and agency occur. You know, of course, the work I'm doing is research-based. It's, it's, it's a uh, trying to um, make uh, underrepresented knowledge uh, visible. In a way, some people have talked about it as activism, but I used to see myself as someone who would be able to respond more urgently and more directly uh, through the things that I make. And now I feel like I go through these slow processes of, um, you know, uh, researching, collecting content, editing, uh, designing, pushing it out to production, which takes like a year for a book to yeah. be done. You know, takes a long time. Um, if I do it the way that I really want to, clients always want it yesterday. You know, so timelines, if you have clients, can be shorter. But, um, yeah, I'm just, like, so curious. With all of the stuff that has happened, what have graphic designers been doing? How have we been showing up? It kind of feels like communities in general have stopped. Maybe maybe, maybe they haven't. Maybe it's where I've placed myself, that I've placed myself in a space where I'm an immigrant worker and... I have to do good for myself and for my family, wherever they are. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what my participation in, uh, in a more direct way looks like. Really, I, I feel to me that you are, you are definitely showing up, but, but I feel like now you are also a part of the content itself, and by, mm. by, by setting the lead and being that, um, by being at the forefront, I think of these conversations that you are you're helping others in a similar way identify with uh, with your voice and also identify mm-hmm. with you know and and help them contextualize themselves within you know this disruptive space uh, you know i think this conversation also was a part of that right mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because you're you are doing a panel today, right? In Bedside. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like you're showing now. up. Yo, you do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, so um, what's the uh, where can our listeners reach you? How can they find you? Uh, where are you on social media? Uh, All that I am stuff. not. I, I am not giving up that information. I need to make it harder <laughs> for people to find me. I, I find love it that. so Usually hard. People no, want I to plug it, their shit. I find it so hard to say no to things, and now I've got too much on my plate. I really need to. Um, I just need to dial back. Cool. I love meeting people. Keep it I, a secret. I love hearing. I. I'm. I think I'm also like very easy to find. I have a very specific name. You know. I, if, if if people want to find me, they'll find me. I, you know, you're right. Yeah, they'll find me. I like to be introduced through friends as well. It's like it's nice to uh, know, like have a line, a, a, a kind of genealogy of relationships. I, I love the uh, that kind of ecosystem. So find someone that knows me and, you know, because I, I love to connect in that way. I love that. Nancy, thank you so much for coming through today. This was amazing, beautiful, and I feel that I feel like we really did it. Just uh, if I said anything too revolutionary, don't uh, injure me. I'm a person in the world trying to do the best that I can, and we all need to like be a little bit more like you know push and just really stand by what we believe in. That's you know that's so I speak out of that place. I yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That was a great conversation with Nansikalela Mutiti. So thank you to her uh, for her time. And also I hope you listeners enjoy that. It's a great way to kick off your 2020 as well as kick off the fifth season of First Generation Burden. Um, Speaking of which, you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps spread the good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu. Again, thank you to Listening Party and Canal Street Market. Follow them at at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Thanks to the Desgen team for their support. Thank you for checking out Season 5 of First Gen Burden. Come back next week, dropping every Monday. Be safe, everyone.